Well, could I uh, add my good afternoon and welcome to you all this uh, Easter Sunday afternoon and the service of Belvedere Road Church. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you in person today and it's a privilege to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ on any Lord's Day but particularly on Easter Sunday when even the world recognises that this is the day that marks the anniversary of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the day when Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Holy Spirit by Jesus' bodily resurrection of the dead as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.4. So it's a welcome to all of you who are here in person, to those who are live streaming at home or wherever you happen to be and also to those who may watch at a later time. We're going to consider the 40th chapter of the prophet Isaiah which was read in your presence by Graham a few minutes ago. Now I've got four points and the first is this, Isaiah, who was he? The man and his ministry. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it records that Isaiah was called to his prophetic ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. And that's probably 740 BC, give or take a year or two. And he had a vision, Isaiah did, in the Jerusalem temple of the Lord God Almighty sitting on his throne. And the one overwhelming impression of God he received was the holiness of God. Even the pure angels round the throne repeatedly declared the absolute and utter holiness of God. And Isaiah was personally struck by this and he cried out, I am ruined. I'm ruined. Scousers would say, I'm gutted. He was ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And in the vision, Isaiah sees an angel take a, a red hot coal from the altar, the altar of sacrifice and brings it and he touches it to Isaiah's mouth and the angel declares see this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for and at this time the Lord God commissions Isaiah to take his word to the Jewish nation now Isaiah he lived a long time. He lived long enough to record the later death of the Assyrian king Sennacherib in chapter 37, verse 36. Sennacherib died in October 681 BC. So Isaiah had a ministry that spanned 60 years through the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and probably into the reign of the bad king Manasseh. 
So he had a long ministry. There's a wonderful thing about Isaiah. There's the Isaiah scroll. It's the oldest surviving complete manuscript of Isaiah. It was found in 1946 uh, amongst the the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it dates from about 150 BC. It's the oldest complete copy of the book of Isaiah, and it's approximately a thousand years older than the oldest Hebrew manuscripts that were known before its discovery. It's a stunning proof, isn't it, of Isaiah 40, verse 8. The word of our God endures forever when travel resumes you can go to Israel and see this book on display or browse it over the internet when you get back home I would exhort you to read the whole of the book of Isaiah what a blessing you will get Isaiah is often called the greatest of the Old Testament prophets He speaks clearly about God's judgment and God's salvation. And he gives the clearest Old Testament prophetic picture of the birth, character, ministry, death, bodily resurrection, and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says in his gospel, in John 12, 41, Isaiah saw these things. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. Some people call uh, the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel because of its magnificent content. Now, Isaiah, he speaks to the people of his own time and he spoke to their kings. He speaks to the prophecy to the Jews that were going a hundred years later to be in captivity in Babylon he speaks to the Jews of Jesus time and he speaks to the people of God through all generations he speaks to you and he speaks to me it's amazing isn't it all this clear prophecy 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's Isaiah the man and his ministry. And we're now going to look at the transcendent nature of God. We're going to look at the grandeur of God. Now, as we read this chapter of Isaiah, uh, we see the majesty of God's person and being. Have you ever been stunned by beauty? Have you ever stood in awe, perhaps, of a beautiful sunset or a beautiful painting or even a beautiful person? Have you ever been in awe of beauty? Well, this chapter encourages us to stand in awe of the beauty and greatness of God. So we see, first of all, in this chapter, that the Lord God is way beyond anything 
on the human scale. It says in verse 23, you know, even the greatest of mankind are nothing compared to God. He brings princes to nothing and reduces the rulers of this world to naught. Actually, God is the one, it tells us in verse 24, sets the boundaries, not only of our lives, but of the great and good and the princes and the rulers. No sooner, Isaiah says, are they planted No sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than than he, that's the Lord God, blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Verse 15 teaches us that even whole nations are totally insignificant by comparison to the Lord God. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded just as dust on the weighing scales. Verse 17, before him, before God, all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. This chapter is telling us that God is way beyond anything, beyond any comparison on the human scale. And God is way beyond anything on an earthly scale. Look at verses 12 to 17. God is way beyond anything on an earthly scale by size and by endurance. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Or with the breadth of his hand marked out the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Verse 13. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? What was it? That taught him not, who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Everything in our direct experience is puny in comparison to the greatness of God's person and nature. The ground we walk upon, the lakes and oceans we may swim in, even the mountains are nothing to God. Human knowledge and wisdom are nothing compared to the knowledge and wisdom of God. God is way beyond comparison on an earthly scale. And God is way beyond comparison on a planetary and even a cosmic scale. Verses 21 and 22. Have you not heard? Do you not know? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, that is God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. 
Who created these? He brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God is way beyond anything on a planetary or even a cosmic scale. There's, there's nothing and no one equal to or even comparable to God. As it says in verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. There's nothing and no one comparable to God. And so it's foolishness, it teaches us in verses 18 to 20, to make any kind of idol to replace God or even attempt to represent him. So don't even try representing God by an image made in gold or silver or wood. You know, if only for these reasons, mankind should worship and serve the great God, the creator. For as it tells us in verse 28, he alone is worthy. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So God is transcendent. He and he alone is above and beyond the range of human experience. So the majesty of God's person and being. Let's consider it. Have you ever been stunned by beauty? Have you ever stood in awe at the a beautiful sunset or painting or person, this chapter encourages us to stand in awe of the beauty and person of the Lord God, our creator. So we've looked at Isaiah, the man and his ministry. We've looked at the transcendent nature of God. And now we're going to look at the ephemeral nature of mankind. Ephemeral. Should I pick on somebody and ask for a dictionary definition? Well, ephemeral, it means lasting for a short time. Ephemeral, lasting for a short time. We're fleeting inhabitants, aren't we, of this planet? We're actually fleeting inhabitants of these bodies. It'll soon be gone, won't it? It tells us in this chapter, verse 6, that all men are like grass or flowers. Grass withers and flowers fail. But the word of our God lasts forever. The voice says cry out, doesn't it? And it says in the chapter, verse 6, What shall I cry? All men are like grass. And all their glory like the flowers of the field. This is a statement that needs to be cried out time and again. We all need to be reminded of this truth. 
because we so easily forget and we become filled with the pride of life. But the word of God says all men are like grass or flowers. Grass withers and flowers fall. Do you recall the, uh, the green of the leaves on the trees last year? Do you remember the golds and reds of autumn? Haven't you seen the, the decayed brown gunge of the fallen leaves that are now trod to mush and only good for compost? That's you and me. That's men and women. That's all mankind. Do you recall the pretty display of Christmas flowers that you had in your home? They're all faded. They're dry. They're dead. They've been put in the bin. They've been taken away. Or perhaps more recently, the, the beautiful Valentine flowers, uh, ladies, perhaps, that your husband's or paramours presented you with on the 14th of February. Those bouquets are now all thrown out with the rubbish. They're all gone. That's us, here today and gone tomorrow. Did you see, perhaps, on your way here this afternoon, in the sunshine, the cherry blossom on trees? It was beautiful. Beautiful and yet so temporary. In one month's time, all that blossom, at the height of its beauty, it will have fallen to the floor and perished. And so too is our existence. As you drive or cycle or walk home tonight and you see the cherry blossom, think that we are just like that blossom, ready to fall and ready to perish because we are so ephemeral, we're so transient, we last for a very short time. And just as the Lord sets the time to bring us into this world, he sets the day when we are taken out. And just as the wind might blow that cherry blossom down the street, the breath of the Lord, verse 7, it says, blows on us, and our time's up and we pass away. Verse 24, no sooner are they planted than he blows on them and they wither. The Lord sets the time to bring us into this world and the time for us to leave. And so we see what a contrast there is between the fleeting existence of mankind and the eternal splendor of the almighty God. How much bigger a difference could there be? Just consider it. God's word stands forever. We hardly stand for a day. It seems likely now, doesn't it, that we're going to survive the virus. Yeah? And yet not one of us will escape death. We've dodged one bullet, but nevertheless, we're heading for certain destruction in death. We are a mere passing glory, and we have a momentary existence. 
Just as our, just contrast our existence with that of God in verse 28. God is the everlasting Lord, the creator of the world. He doesn't even grow tired or weary, nor does he lack any wisdom or knowledge. And we have a temporary, fleeting existence. What a contrast between temporary mankind and the eternal God. So we've looked at Isaiah, the man and his ministry. We've looked at the transcendent nature of God and the ephemeral nature of mankind. And now we'll look at the the nature of God's dealings with us. And first of all, we we recognize from verses 27 that God knows and understands our nature. Nothing, nothing about us is hidden from God. Verse 28, God's understanding is unsearchable. There's no limit to it. He knows all things and he certainly knows us. And God knows our weak nature and he is mindful of our weak nature. Verse 1, he comes to bring comfort to us in our weakness. And it says that God comes speaking tenderly to us. The nature of God's dealing with mankind. Secondly, God comes to deal with us in person. He's not like one of these uh, super rich or famous people that you occasionally see on TV. Maybe you've happened to see one of them in the flesh. These super rich or famous people that disdain to deal with us impoverished mortals. This walk past us without even a glance. No, God's not like that. He comes to deal with us in person. Verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord. Make a highway for our God. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all mankind will see it. Verse 9, here is your God. God comes in person to deal with us. How wonderful is that? And how amazing. And the third thing we see is that God deals with us according to our needs. Verses 29 to 31. Are you weary? Some of us are weary, aren't we? He gives you strength. Are you weak? Some of us are very weak. He gives power. Even to those in the Even those in the flush and energy of youth grow tired. But those whose very trust is in God will be renewed by him. When we are at rock bottom, God will nevertheless cause us to soar, to rise, to walk, to continue. And God does this to those who understand his transcendent nature and understand their own ephemeral nature. So whether you are at the start of your race or whether you are very near the end of it, God will deal with you 
according to your needs. And he'll provide the strength, the help, the comfort, the faith that we need. And as just as he has kept us so far, he will sustain us to the end, till that time when we go to be with him. That's for those whose hope is in the Lord. So God deals with us according to our needs and gives us the strength we need. Now God knows all about us and he knows our sin. Verse 2. The issue that is most important to God about us is our sin. Because as we've seen in verse 27, our ways are not hidden from God or a mystery to him. He knows us and he knows our sin and he knows that that is a big problem. The problem is this, our lives are short. We're just mown grass or fallen blossom. Our time is short on the earth. And then we face the judgment of a holy God. Like Isaiah, when we see the utter perfection of the holiness of the Lord God, we will realize we are ruined. But there's good news, isn't there? God meets us gently in our sins. He sends a shepherd, one to care for us, to care tenderly for us. He deals with us, it tells us in verse 11, as a shepherd nurtures his flock. The sovereign Lord comes with power, yes, verse 11. He comes in person and he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. He comes bringing comfort, verse 1. Comfort to my people. That is to God's people. He's bringing comfort to God's people. This statement's repeated in verse 2. Jerusalem, city of Jerusalem that's mentioned, is symbolic of the people of God. And he's coming bringing comfort to Jerusalem, which means bringing comfort to God's people. And the comforting words spoken in verse 2 is that our sins have been dealt with. Our sins have been paid for. Our iniquity is pardoned. The nature of God's dealings with mankind. Just as Jesus so clearly says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. As he says, he gives his life a ransom for many. Just as it's said there in the Gospels, it's graphically explained by Isaiah in chapter 53 of his book. And there he talks about the suffering servant of God, Jesus, pierced for our transgressions. He talks about him crushed for our iniquities and it says the punishment that brings us peace was on him 
and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus is this shepherd, is this good shepherd who atones for our sin. Jesus is the Lord God who personally comes to visit us, who lays down his life to pay our debt of sins. And this is how the transcendent, you know, the transcendent God personally deals with the sins of fleeting mortals. It's how he deals with my sin and your sin by personally taking that sin upon himself so that in the words spoken to Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 7, so that our guilt is taken away and our sin atoned for, all by the life, death and resurrection of the perfect eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let us put our trust in him.